For those of you who have small kids or perhaps are just disorganized, it's a familiar ritual. You're on your way out the door to church. Hopefully everything is, is running smoothly, but some mornings it's a little bit of a rush. Braden, where's your Bible? Maggie, where's your shoes? Kelly, where's your phone? Dan, where's your keys? I've been having trouble with that the last few weeks. But now I have a key ring, and I'm not going back and forth, so we should be in good shape. So I hopefully I won't need Mike to come bail me out too much. While we don't get the same sense of urgency exactly in the passage that we'll look at this morning, we do see Paul giving a lot of final instructions to the Thessalonian church. And at first glance, they seem perhaps as disorganized as the things that we're, we're calling out to each other as we're trying to get somewhere. But I think that we can group what Paul is saying to the Thessalonian believers under three ideas. And these three ideas build on what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.1. We instructed you how to live in order to please God. So what does a life that pleases God look like? So I want us to listen for three things that Paul tells us to do in this passage. And the first is that we need to live rightly toward others in the church. We need to live rightly toward others in the church. How do we do this? Well, first of all, we respect spiritual authority and love. We see this in verses 12 and 13. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. We also see it uh, down in verse 27 where it says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. And so in connection with what it says in Hebrews 13, 17, God has given leadership in the church, and it sort of is two directions that the leadership takes. There is a responsibility on those who lead to lead well, to watch out for the souls of theirs, those under their care, and to encourage them and to live among them and to see what needs they have and all of these sorts of things. And then there's a responsibility from the other side, which is what Paul is emphasizing, especially in verses 12 and 13, that if there is good spiritual authority in the church, and there should be, there is a proper response to that spiritual authority. And again, we've talked about this over the last few weeks, to the extent that, for example, something I would say to you on a Sunday morning or in a different service is tied to Scripture, there is a responsibility, not just because I'm saying it, but because God has said it, for us all to obey it and to follow it and to live it out in our lives. And I think that's what he's getting out there, where he says... Um, uh, particularly in verse 27, to have this letter read to all the brethren. He's saying, these are God's words. Hear them, pay attention to them, listen to them. But then also in verses 12 and 13, he's saying appreciate. And appreciate isn't just um, uh, you know, a pat on the back or that sort of thing. Uh, it can be... Uh, it's more important that it is... A, a re proper respect for authority. Whoever is bringing God's word, that we have respect when they do that well, that we follow that leadership, and that we recognize that this is from God and not ultimately from that person. And so no one, obvi obviously no one is perfect, but to the extent that spiritual leadership is following Christ's example, is following scripture, then we follow what Paul said in another place, 
follow me as I follow Christ. And so I think that's what he's getting at there with this idea of respecting spiritual authority and love. The next verse, or rather at the end of verse 13, I think he says, live in peace, or to put it another way, avoid petty conflict. There's a story that's told about a fellow who is on a deserted island. They rescue him after 10 or 15 years, and before they leave the island, that he's showing them all the things he's built on the island. What's that? That's my house. What's that? That's my workshop. What's that? That's my church. What's that building back down there? That's the church I used to go to. Hopefully that's not us. Hopefully we are not characterized by petty conflict and divisiveness because Paul says here, live in peace with one another. Do we all have different personalities or hobbies or jobs or income level or family background or a whole host of other things? Are we all unique in how all of those things intersect in our lives? Yes. But when you walk into the doors of the church building, or more properly, when you gather with other people in the church, those are not supposed to be the standards by which we evaluate our relationships to each other. The church is not a country club. You don't join it because you're rich and you all like to play golf or, or whatever other activities go shooting. You come to the church and it's connected to the fact that we are all united in Christ. And so if we have a spirit of divisiveness over all those differences that cause division out in the world, then we're not following what Paul's saying here to live in peace with one another. We're not in the church because we all like football, or we're all from Michigan, or we're all outgoing, or any of those kinds of things. We're in the church because we hopefully are trusting in and following after Christ. And so if that's the case then can we live in peace with one another? Yes. Will there be disagreements? Yes. Because we're sinners? Because all of us are wrong at some point? Because of a number of reasons. There will be disagreements. There will be discussions. But at the end of the day, can we still live in peace with one another? I think we can, and I think we must. And then he says in verse 14, come alongside people in a helpful way. Not everyone is in the same place spiritually. It's fascinating to watch kids grow up. They start out needing you to do everything for them. Constant demands on your time, no sleep, all those sorts of things. And then they get to a little bit further along, and they can feed themselves. You just sort of put it out on a tray, and at least half of it gets in their mouths. And that's a big step. And then they get to the stage where they can dress themselves and go to the bathroom on their own and all these sorts of things. And those are even bigger steps. Spiritual life is like that. It's a process. It's messy. It has its ups and downs. So when we approach people, you don't approach everyone the same way. You don't talk to an infant or a toddler or a six-year-old or a teenager or an adult the same way. Because they have different levels of understanding. They're in different places in life. And in the same way, 
you don't talk to people in the church the same way when it comes to dealing with various issues that come up. Sometimes there are messes in the church. And it's easy for us to say, well, somebody else can go deal with that problem. But we all have a responsibility to one another to address problems that come up, to address sin issues that come up, to address encouragement issues that need to be dealt with. And so what are these responses? Admonish the unruly. This is like the stop when somebody is running across the road and they're about to get hit by a car. You say, stop! But then you come to someone who's fearful. It's the, there's no monsters under your bed for your kids when they're, when they're scared. Or if they don't want to go to sleep, you say, there's no monsters under your bed, but I'm going to give them five bucks and let them come out if you don't go to sleep. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but someone who's fearful, someone who's timid, you have to come alongside that person in a different way from the person that's stubbornly disobeying, right? And there's still yet a different response for the person who is weak. The person who is weak Sometimes in the Bible means sinful, sometimes it means physically weak or sick, and regardless of which meaning it has here, that person needs help. Either help because they have no strength physically, or help because they have no strength spiritually. And it's the encouragement, it's coming alongside, you can do this in God's strength, I will help you do this, here's something God has done to encourage me, let me share it with you. We come along those side people in that circumstance in a different way from the first two. And then with everyone, we need patience. And patience is something that I'm sure we all at some point or another struggle with. And yet we have to be, as it says at the last phrase of verse 14, patient with everyone. We're trying to teach a kid to tie his shoes. How many times do you have to do it? I put in my notes 14, but it feels more like 400. Do we need that kind of patience with each other? Yes. And so, are you matching the appropriate response to the situation that the person you're interacting with finds him or herself in? Or do you just sum up to everybody the same way, and our approach is a, is a two-by-four to everybody? Hey, stop doing that. You're not doing it right. Or do you come up with everybody the same way, hey, everything's fine, and, but they're really doing something wrong and you need to tell them to stop. We can't have the same response to every situation. We have to match it to the situation the person finds themselves in. Furthermore, in connection with how we respond to one another in the church, we need to replace revenge with kindness. Look at verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Think about that feeling that rises up within you when someone cuts you off in traffic. I think this tends to be more of a guy thing, but maybe all of us have experienced it at some point or another. I've experienced it a lot this week because I've been driving back and forth a lot. And uh, you, just get, you just get frustrated with that person. You're like, I hope that police officer pulls that person over. You, you have a desire for something bad to happen to that person. And that's, that's sinful. But there's, that is a desire for revenge. We want 
something bad to happen to that person because they did something or something that we perceive as bad to us. What purpose does that serve? Nothing good. It's selfish. It's unloving. It's not going to fix any of the problem. Maybe it's not so much driving in traffic, ladies. Maybe it's when someone says something about you. And you get that same feeling of, I, just, I want something bad to happen to that person because they just did something really mean to me. And, and, and there's this rift in the relationship now. What? response are we supposed to have? If God is sovereign and the love that he calls us to is real, we can't seek out our own revenge. What are we supposed to seek instead? Seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And he doesn't list it all out there, but essentially what he's saying is to a certain extent what we looked at last Sunday afternoon, which is you cannot just flip a switch and stop doing something bad. You have to replace it with something good. And so if the something bad is taking revenge, the something good is showing kindness. It's not enough just to say, well, I, I'm no longer going to have this desire to do something bad to that person. I'm going to be in sort of a neutral state. We have to start coming here positively and doing something that is kind. What can we do that's kind? Maybe it's saying something kind to that person that we're frustrated with. Obviously, uh, I don't recommend this doing this on 75, going down really fast down the interstate, roll your window down. Hey, I hope you have a great day because that you don't want to cause a wreck. But could you theoretically pray for that person that just cut you off in traffic? Could you say something nice to that person who said something mean to you or about you to someone else? And I'm not saying don't deal with problems. If there's sin issues, we need to confront them. We need to deal with them. But there's also an extent to which sometimes we need to practice saying, instead of having a desire to see that person be hurt because of something they did that hurt me, what can I do that's kind to that person? And that's part of that process of spiritual growth. So living rightly toward one another in the church, in abstaining from revenge, in properly responding to various spiritual conditions, in living in peace with one another, avoiding petty conflict, and in having a proper regard for spiritual authority. But living rightly toward one another follows up, is followed up with how we respond correctly to the ups and downs of life. And we see this in the next few verses, starting with verse 16. Constant joy is to characterize the Christian's life. We looked at Psalm 16 about a month ago. Joy and happiness are closely related. And so it's difficult to say, where does one stop and the other begin? Sometimes people will say, well, it's because the one lasts and the other doesn't. I think it boils down to this. Saved people and lost people alike can be happy. We can have that feeling of satisfaction and pleasure in something. But only a Christian can have the sort of joy that Paul is talking about to rejoice always because apart from God, you can see no purpose in difficult circumstances that come in your life. Why did this happen? I have no idea. I'm going to try to forget it. I'm going to try to ignore it. I'm going to try to go away from it because I can't explain it and I don't like it and I'm not going to have a good attitude about it. 
But for us who know Christ, joy is possible even in those circumstances. Joy is it's looking over and, and, and watching one of your kids do something kind for another one when you said, be kind, over and over and over again, and they get it, and, and you say, yes, they got it. And, and there's this, this sense of excitement and joy and a, a confidence that all is right in the world, even when the world is not all right, that because I have a relationship to God and to other people, and I understand where I fit into that, and I'm rightly relating to God, other people and to God, I can have that joy that Paul is talking about. He talks about that joy in Philippians. He says that he had it even when he was in prison. That he had it even when he was being beaten for the faith. Why? Because he knew he was doing what God wanted him to do. He was obeying God. He was relating rightly to the people around him. He was relating rightly to God. And he had joy. We see also in verse 17 that prayer... I think we could say, particularly in our context, replaces a do-it-yourself attitude. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing things yourself. You can save a lot of money that way. You can also learn the limitations of your own ability in a lot of different ways. For example, I've learned not to start plumbing jobs on Saturday night when you need the uh, sink or the shower for Sunday morning to get ready. So there is that. Do-it-yourself is not bad in a lot of things in life. But... When it comes to life generally, you can't do it yourself. You need God, and you need other Christians. And with particular reference to needing God, how do we express a need for God? Probably the clearest way that we express a need for God is when we pray. And pray without ceasing is something that some uh, church groups have taken to be kind of a a mindless repetition sort of thing. You just sort of got to be always mumbling under your breath, saying some kind of prayer. And that falls into the category of the empty ritual that Jesus condemned when the Pharisees were doing it. He said, you're saying all these prayers, you're saying them to be seen by other people, you're saying it not really even thinking about it. Pray without ceasing, I think what Paul means is, be always ready to pray. You wake up in the morning, and you're taking a shower, getting ready for the day, God, thank you for this day. Please help me to live for you. You go out to the driveway and your car won't start. God, please help this to work out. I really need to get to work. You are um, in whatever circumstance is your response prayer. I was reminded about this the other day. We were trying to sell our house and... Uh, we got an offer on the house, and my first response, just because this is sort of my nature is, all right, let's look at all the pros and cons and sort of weigh all the options, and I was, I was in the middle of all that, and I was rebuked because I thought, you know what, my first response should be, God, give me wisdom about this. And it's easy for that to be like third or fourth on the list. So do we... Pray without ceasing. And why is this important? It's important because if you remember back to the beginning of the book, Paul said, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in, your in our prayers. And then he says, pray without ceasing. And then he says in verse 25, brethren, pray for us. 
So what's he saying? He's saying we should always be ready to pray. He's saying you pray for me, I pray for you. All of us together are praying to God to what end? So that we can see God work and rejoice in what God is doing in our lives individually and as a congregation and in the world as a whole. And so do we pray without ceasing? Or do we say, you know what? I'm good. I, I can do it all on my own, and I don't need to, I don't need to worry about it. I, I'm good. And then he says in verse 18, And everything give thanks. And so, so I think we could say, based on this and other passages, that thankfulness replaces complaining. Why? Why does thankfulness replace complaining? Because we see God's hand both in trials and blessings. This is something that the children of Israel struggle with constantly. And we like to get on their case, and rightly so, because they were regularly complaining. We're out in the middle of the desert. God's provided water. God's provided food. What were they unhappy about? We don't have onions and garlic. God made bread rain from the sky, and you're upset because you don't have certain spices and herbs that you had when you were in Egypt that you didn't really have all the time because you were slaves making bricks and working night and day to meet the quotas. So why are we thankful in some circumstances and complaining in other circumstances? A lot of it comes down to, do I recognize what God is doing in that circumstance, or do I have a wrong perspective on it? Which is not to say that evil isn't real or any of that sort of foolishness. It's just to say that I can be in the exact same situation and have an attitude of thankfulness, and someone else could be in that exact same situation and have an attitude of complaining. Why? Because I don't see God working in it. Maybe, for example, it's that you say, I, you know, I have, a, I have a job that's really hard and, um, you know, I just, I just I can't stand the people I work with and all this sort of... I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about maybe some experience that you've had. Um, and maybe there's somebody over here who says, you know what, I wish I could get a job. I'm struggling to make things... Why is that person complaining and this person saying, I envy you? Because this person is not focusing on what God is doing, on God's kindness. I mean, when you, think, when you stop and think about God's kindness, when you woke up this morning, the fact that you are breathing is a sign of God's kindness. When you woke up this morning, the fact that you had food or water or all of these sorts of things is a sign of God's kindness. Jesus said in Matthew that God cares for your needs just as he clothes the grasses of the field and watches out for the birds of the sky. And we look at God's kindness and we often overlook it. In everything give thanks. And in case we're not sure if this is really an important deal, Paul says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There's not a ton of places in the New Testament where it has that specific phrase and is really clear like that. 
But he says here, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And I'll admit, this could apply to all of the things that he's saying right here, sort of as a summing up, this is God's will for you. But specifically, he follows up, giving thanks in everything with this is God's will. And where it says, for you in Christ Jesus, obviously, having a proper attitude to the ups and downs of life is not possible apart from knowing Jesus. And so all of you have heard the gospel message. I trust all of you are believing it. But if you have never turned away from sin and turned to Christ, you are not in Christ Jesus, and you can't give thanks in every circumstance because you don't know Him. You don't see what God's doing. You're not trusting in Him. And that's why this is so essential. I think it's important to note as well, he doesn't necessarily say give thanks for everything, but he says give thanks in everything. Why is that important? I think that there are circumstances in life that are evil that I don't know that we can necessarily give thanks for the circumstance and, and blindly say this is a good circumstance in and of itself. Someone is murdered, for example. I don't think we have to put a, 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 a mask of happiness on and say, oh, that's a good thing, everything's fine. But what can we say? We can say, I don't understand this situation, God. I don't know what's going on. But I know that you can work in my life through it, and I need your help. And I know that I'm in a right relationship with you. And so, Lord, I am thankful for all of these things of the circumstance that you put me in, in terms of me knowing Christ and me trusting in Christ and all of these sorts of things. Lord, help, help me in this situation. Responding correctly to the ups and downs of life, I think, only happens when we discern carefully in spiritual matters. And this comes back to the perspective I was talking about. If we have a right understanding of truth, then we're able to respond to the ups and downs of life in a biblical way, and we're able to rightly relate to one another in, in, in the church. So, in what way are we to discern carefully? Well, first of all, we're supposed to welcome the Spirit's work. Verse 19 says, do not quench the Spirit. It's interesting that many times in the Bible, God is represented as a fire. For example, in his covenant with Abraham, he's a fiery torch that passes between the parts of the animal and the sacrifice. And Moses speaks to God in a burning bush. Uh, Hebrews 12.29 says, our God is a consuming fire. When he says, don't quench the Spirit... Uh, I don't know if you've ever been camping, but if you've been camping, we like to go to some state parks. They'll have a, a, a fire ring, like a, a metal thing with concrete inside, and, and you build your fire up in there, and it's time to go to bed, it's late, or you're going to go somewhere. You have to put it out. Why? So you don't burn down the whole campground. So what do you do? You cover it over with some dirt. You pour water on it. You quench it. You put it out. And sometimes you realize that you didn't do a good job of it. If you walk out there a few minutes later, you have to do it again. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, don't treat the Spirit's work like a campfire that you're trying to put out. Now, the analogy breaks down clearly in the sense that we, to, at the end of the day, can we thwart God's purpose? No. Think of what it says in the book of Esther. If you don't do this, Someone else will do it. 
God's purpose will be accomplished. He will save his people because he has a relationship with his people. So if you don't do it, Esther, somebody's going to do it. And yet I think there is a sense in which we individually in our lives can quench the Spirit in terms of... And, and again, I, I hesitate to speak this way because God's sovereign, He accomplishes His purposes in our lives. But Paul's very clearly saying that our disobedience will at least temporarily interfere with the Spirit's work in our lives. So what, should, what does that mean for us? It means God can accomplish His purpose whether I'm willing or not, but at the same time, I am very much responsible for my participation in my spiritual growth. It's not like a 50-50 thing. God contributes half, I contribute half, and everything is good. God supplies 100% of the strength that I need, and I'm supposed to be 100% diligent about what God has called me to do. And so if I am not diligent about what God has called me to do, am I going to grow spiritually in the way that I ought to? No. But where's the problem? The problem is not with God. The problem is with me. And so do I welcome the Spirit's work or do I put it aside? What are ways that we might quench the Spirit? Refusing to listen to His Word. Refusing to pray. Refusing to do the things that God has called us to do. We know the truth, but we fail to follow it. Like it says in James, we come to the mirror of God's word, we say, here's a problem, I'm not going to do anything about it, and we turn and walk the other way. That would be an example of what Paul is saying here about quenching the Spirit. He's saying, don't do that. Verse 20, revere divine instruction. He says, don't despise prophetic utterances. Now it's interesting, and I don't know if this is something you've necessarily thought about, there were prophets in the New Testament. If you think about uh, in the book of Acts, there's a man named Agabus who warned Paul, if you go down to Jerusalem, you're going to be in bondage and you will eventually die. And so there were prophets in the New Testament. And so that teaching was authoritative and the early church was to listen to their words. Now, we don't have prophetic utterances today because the scripture is complete. We don't need to be adding more things to scripture. And this is important. Because in a variety of cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and even among people who would say that they believe the Bible and who probably are genuine Christians, there are people who say, well, the Bible is good, but I have a word from God for you. This is very popular among various uh, TV preachers. And um, there are a number of uh, uh, women who teach the Bible, for example, who would say these sorts of things as well. And we have to watch out for that because sometimes we, we would look at this and we'd say, well, you know what? If somebody has an idea over here and they say it's a, a feeling, a sense, a word, an impression from God, and it doesn't contradict what the Bible says, then that's okay because they're in agreement. But the problem is when we take that step, we're subtly putting things that people have ideas about on the same level as things that God has authoritatively said, and that is a step often in the process of then saying, well, this agrees with the Bible, so that's fine. Then we come over here and we say, well, this doesn't agree with the Bible, but it sounds really good, so that's okay. And then we come over here and we say, well, this clearly contradicts the Bible, 
well, I've already taken all these steps, and not everyone makes that progression, but I do think that we have to recognize that it's not okay to say, well, but what this person said is in agreement with the Bible, and so even though it's extra biblical, I can accept it, and that's fine. I think it's unprofitable to argue with someone who said, I've had a vision or a dream or an extra biblical experience, because you're not necessarily going to persuade them that they didn't have that experience. But I don't think that we can concede and say, well, but that's okay as long as it agrees with the Bible. I think we have to say the Bible is enough. And adding to the gospel message or adding to the text of Scripture is a dangerous and often demonic and sinful way to go. And so do we revere divine instruction? Don't despise prophetic utterances, whether it was from the Old Testament prophets, whether it was from the New Testament prophets, whether it was epistles or history or psalms or whatever. The truth that we have in the Bible is something that we should respect and follow and see as sufficient. And this extends to a lot of areas of life. Many times we come to problems in our lives and because we have been in a culture where it says you need a professional to fix this, we'll say, well, let's go outside the Bible because the Bible doesn't really have answers for that. You're, you're discouraged, you need to go see a, a psychiatrist. you are uh, got problems in your marriage, you need to go see a secular counselor. The Bible has answers for those problems. Do we turn to God's Word or do we look into all of these other places? If you belong to God and you know God, don't despise prophetic utterances and set it aside and say, you know, the Bible is good, but I'm going to talk to somebody about the Bible. I'm going to set the Bible aside. I'm going to say, let me argue all these evidences for God's existence. Give them the truth. Somebody's facing a problem in life and you say, well, you know, the Bible is good, but I'm going to set it aside. Um, Let's come up with all of man's ideas about how to fix this problem. The Bible speaks to those things. So do we accept God's word as authoritative truth and use it to guide our lives and find the answers that we need? Or do we look in all these other places? Don't despise prophetic utterances. Revere divine instruction. Furthermore, we need to diligently evaluate truth claims. It says in verse, 20, verse 21, Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Spiritual discernment is something that is often lacking in our day. And I feel bad saying this, but I think sometimes we're very gullible when we look at things that say that they're Christian. This is a Christian author, a Christian blogger, a Christian speaker. Well, they say they're a Christian. They must be a Christian. It must be good. Does it match up with what the Scripture says? And I'm not trying to pick on ladies, but there are a lot of ladies' Bible studies that are terrible at this. Let's pick a verse completely out of context because it sounds really good and tie it into my life experience and then we'll just sort of go with that. And to be fair, there's men Bible studies that do the same thing as well. So I'm not just picking on ladies Bible studies. But there are a lot of instances 
of people saying they're a Christian or using Christian words or Christian ideas, and they don't mean what the Bible means by those things, or they're misusing the Bible to support a particular idea that they have. And so are we wise and discerning as we look at things that say, here's something good, listen to it, follow it, and all those sorts of things? Or are we just sort of taking everything in uncritically? Examine everything carefully. Look closely at it. It's like looking, at you, say you're selling something and someone says, here's 40 bucks. And you say, I don't know this person. I'm going to look at the money and see if it's counterfeit or not. You're just going to glance at, oh, that's good. It's all fine. And maybe for 40 bucks you would. What if it was 500? Would you be a little more careful about it? You'd look at it. You'd say, is this real? Is this genuine? Do we have that same sort of concern when we look at things that, that say that they're Christian, that they are in fact good, that they are in fact matching up with what Scripture says? Make sure that you don't just accept everything at face value, but that you think about it. Does this, and, and even from people that have been, we could say, respected voices in Christianity, there are a lot of guys who have taught the Bible, been seminary professors, written theological books, have taken a wrong turn in their thinking and have ended up way over here completely wrong about what they're saying. And so that's the other thing, too. It's not just, does what this person say is true? But also, sometimes it's at what point of the things they've said throughout their life are we looking at? Because there are theologians that some of the stuff they wrote early on was really good, or some of the stuff they wrote later on was really good, and some of the other stuff was really terrible. So are we looking at things that we see and evaluating them to see if they match up with Scripture. And then the next verse where it says, abstain from every form of evil, I think essentially means this, reject sinful practices. A lot of people have misunderstood this verse, and some of that comes down to translation. So just a brief word on that. Bible translations are a blessing and a benefit to the church. Language also changes over time. So some of you may have grown up using the King James Version. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is that what certain words and phrases meant 400 years ago, or even 300 and some years ago, which is the revision that most people have, don't mean the same thing today. And so, for example, in the King James, this verse says, abstain from every appearance of evil. And what does appearance mean to us today? How does this person look? What did appearance mean when they wrote it, and what does the Greek mean, and what is it translated here in the NASB, which I think actually agrees with what the King James says. It's just a matter of, of the way that language changes. Abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from every instance of evil. Every appearance is every time that evil takes shape and form and we see it in front of us, that's what it means. It's not everything that looks bad. So it doesn't mean... Abstain from everything that looks bad. It's abstain from everything that is bad. Just like the previous verse says, hold fast to what's good. Examine everything carefully. This is the, the, the connected idea. Abstain from every form of evil. And so we need wisdom. We need to show deference to fellow believers. But applying this verse 
is less about not doing things other Christians might think are bad, but rather making sure that we don't do the things that God has forbidden to us. Let me just give you an example. Perhaps some of you would hesitate to go see a movie. And if that's your conscience, don't violate your conscience. Don't go see a movie. But, but let me use it to illustrate the point I'm trying to make here. Is going to see a movie automatically wrong? A lot of pastors, particularly in the second half of the, the 1900s, taught that certain things were sinful. Going to movies, women wearing pants, men growing a beard or a mustache. I'm not looking at any of you because I, I think you can see where I'm going with this. And while some things have cultural connotations that we, could we should consider, perhaps there was some argument for saying growing a beard in the 60s was a sign of rebellion. Perhaps it wasn't. Does that automatically and for always mean that that is a sinful and disobedient practice? I don't think you can find a verse that says that it is. And the irony is that a lot of the same people who would say, don't go to a movie, would also say, go to Blockbuster. For you kids, Blockbuster was a place where you'd actually have to physically go into store to get a movie because there was no Netflix. Here's the problem. Instead of teaching the biblical principles about modesty, about purity and what we put into our minds, about um, just the... the uh, the way that we present ourselves to people around us in terms of our interaction with the lost, many times people held up extra-biblical standards on the same level as Scripture, and in the same way that I have a word from the Lord when the Bible is complete undermines the authority of Scripture, people who said, here's an extra-biblical standard that I'm going to treat as though it's Bible, undermines the authority of Scripture because the response is a lot of people my age or younger or even before my generation looked at that and they said, where's that in the Bible? And then because our tendency is to have a pendulum shift way over here, many of them have gone off the deep end. We don't have to follow any of that stuff. They'll either leave the church or do all sorts of crazy things. And they have responsibility if they have an overreaction. But I think we also have a responsibility to be very clear about what is in Scripture. This is right, this is wrong. And then the further we move out from that to here's a command, here's a principle, here's an application of a principle, here's an application of a principle in a specific church, for example, or a specific school, we have to be clear on the difference between those levels of authority to the extent that they are closer or further away from Scripture. And why is this important? I'm not saying go out and do whatever you want to do. I'm saying that it is inconsistent to say don't go to a movie, but go to the video store that sells things that are rated worse than you would find at the movie theater. And that's okay, but this isn't okay. I'm saying let's be consistent and look at the principles of what Scripture teaches. Don't say, don't preach about beards and skirts and all of those sorts of things and fail to preach about living a holy life and 
reaching out to your neighbor who doesn't know Christ and all those sorts of things. Because at the end of the day, if this is all people know Christians as you don't do these things, what separates a Christian from someone in a cult group that dresses really conservatively and, and lives a good moral life? What separates us? It shouldn't just be external appearance things. It should be the condition of our heart that spills out into the way that we live in all of life. That we're characterized by an attitude of thankfulness and a trust in God's sovereignty and, and ministering to one another and showing a love that the world doesn't understand and doesn't explain. And so don't mishear, don't mishear me. I'm not saying go do whatever you want. I'm saying have a good biblical reason both for the things that you do and the things that you don't do. And understand the difference between this is something that is evil and this is something that maybe uh, has a certain appearance to people. So should we have standards? Yes. We have to decide before God what's acceptable in His sight, what our consciences will allow, what context we are in in terms of our church, recognizing that our consciences can be wrong, either too sensitive or too insensitive, and may need training and correction. We need to recognize that sometimes we, we would feel like we would have freedom to do something and we need to factor in the fact that this may be a problem for someone around us if it will actually cause them to sin, not if it differs from their conscience. There's a difference between those two things. And so along these lines, with regards to abstaining from every form of evil, I would think that there's at least three questions we would want to ask. Am I avoiding this practice because I'm worried about what other Christians will think? Something we should consider. Secondly, am I avoiding this practice because of what unsaved people around me will think? And thirdly, am I avoiding this practice because of what God will think? The first one often points out pride. I want to look good before other people. So I'm not going to do this because I don't want somebody to think badly of me. Not, and sometimes it's rightly motivated because we want to not do things that are wrong. But a lot of times it's, I don't want somebody to have the wrong impression of this. The second question often points out good intentions that don't match up to reality. When you talk to unsaved people around you, people who don't follow God, the things that are problems for us are rarely problems for them. And that's... There's pros and cons of that. But if you ask the average person on the street, hey, I went to see a movie last week. I say, oh, you must not be a Christian. That's really like a in-the-walls-of-the-church kind of way of thinking. What are they looking for? They're looking for you. They say, well, what does your church teach? Well, my church teaches, or rather the Bible teaches, that I'm supposed to live in this way, or let's say that the Bible teaches I'm not supposed to swear, I'm supposed to reverence God's name. What are they going to look at? They're going to really come after you if you swear. Why? Because you're not matching up with what you said the Bible teaches. A lot of other things that we think would be a problem for lost people and damage our testimony will not. That doesn't mean that we're careless, that doesn't mean that we don't think about it, but a lot of times the things that our big problems in our minds are something that would never cross their minds. But that third question really is the most important, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, 
what another Christian thinks is not the ultimate standard, and what a lost person thinks is not the ultimate standard. It's what does God think? And what does God think? God th what God thinks is laid out pretty clearly in His Word. God says certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And beyond that are certain things about which they may not be right or wrong in every circumstance, but they require wisdom to think through. And uh, I hope to talk more about that at a, at a future point. But part of showing discernment is evaluating the choices that we make and thinking about, is this right? Is this wrong? How confident am I that this is right and wrong? Even if it's not wrong, is it wise for me to do it in my immediate context? Has the meaning of this particular practice changed over time in my culture so that it doesn't mean now what it meant 20 years ago or 50 years ago? There are some things that, were, that are always and forever will be wrong. There are some things that maybe a Christian shouldn't do in a particular time and place, but might be allowable in another time and place. And the danger of me saying that is that you might be listening to that, you might say, well, it doesn't matter what we do, it's all relative. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we need to abstain from every form of evil. And if there is a question, don't do it. I'm not encouraging anyone to violate their conscience. What I am saying is, let's make sure that what we're doing and the reason that we're doing it is tied to Scripture. And it doesn't have to be chapter and verse. Sometimes it can be, I look at this passage and this passage and this passage, and I have the sense that this is what God wants Christians to do based on all of these passages related to each other. So this is the way that I'm going to live. I'm not saying you have to pull out a chapter and verse and say, absolutely, this is right and this is wrong based on only one verse. But what I am saying is, let's make sure that what we're doing or not doing is being done or not done for biblical reasons. Show discernment by avoiding evil. So Paul's final instructions to the Thessalonians apply to our lives today. The way that we relate to people in the church, the way that we relate to circumstances around us, the way that we relate to truth, do we show discernment? How can we live these things out? By the power that God supplies. And I think that's what we see in verse 23 and 24, where it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. So if we are able to live rightly toward each other in the church, if we are able to respond the right way to ups and downs in life, and if we are able to properly exercise discernment, why? Because of God's work in our lives. And so we should seek that for ourselves. We should seek that for one another. We should pray for that. And we should recognize that as we look at all of these instructions... They're not just a bunch of random things Paul threw in at the end of the book because they didn't fit anywhere else. They are organized in such a way to help guide us to live our lives in a way that pleases God. 
And at the end of the day, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Because all that we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, whether we go to work, whether we sleep, whether we cook, whether we go on vacation, whatever it is in life that we're doing is supposed to be for God's glory. So are we living in a way that accomplishes God's glory? Or are we living in a way that, that undermines that? And that's really, I think, what a lot of Paul is getting at in this passage. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond properly to one another. There's so many places in life in which foolish conflicts can arise over things that really are not going to matter five or ten years down the road. There's places where we hear your word and we say, I don't want to do that. Lord, help us to repent of that sort of pride. Lord, when we encounter different circumstances in life, often our first response is not to turn to you, not to rejoice, not to give you thanks, not to have a right response to things, not to have a right response when you bless us and also be thankful for your blessing. We just sort of think, well, I, I earned it and it came to me and, and that's it. And then finally, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be discerning. There are so many sources of truth in our world today and and so many are sources claiming to be true in our world today and so many of them are mixed with error lord help us to be wise help us to be discerning help us to be careful to avoid things that are untrue in terms of what we are thinking about what we're reading what we're watching lord help us to then uh, think carefully about the things that we do that we would do what's right that we would hold on to it and that we would turn away from everything that's bad. Lord, help us not to look at those who have gone before us and think that they did everything bad. Help us not to look at those who have gone before us and think that they did everything good. Lord, we all fail. We all are imperfect we must continually look back to your word to make sure that that is the authority for our lives. Lord, help us to be people who follow the Bible in everything that we do. Lord, we need wisdom to do this. We ask that you would give us that wisdom, and you are a God who gives wisdom graciously and generously, so we pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, I pray that you would help it to be clear that... <laughs> That I'm not saying that we should reject everything that's come before. I'm not saying that we should do whatever we want. Your word says that where sin abounded, grace abounded more. But that doesn't mean we should ever sin more. It doesn't mean that we should give no thought to uh, just what we're doing and our relationship to one another and to the world around us. But at the end of the day... You're the one who's going to judge us. You're the one who's going to evaluate us. Lord, we pray that we would all hear when we stand in your presence, well done, good and faithful servant, not because we were um, some, some well-known uh, voice across America, not because 
we were anything impressive in and of ourselves, but Lord, simply because we were faithful to your word. Help us to be faithful, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.